The sermon text this morning is from the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 5. I'll be reading it in three sections, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bozek. They found Adonai Bozek at Bozek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bozek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bozek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazer. So the Canaanites lived in Gazer among them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bukim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Most of you are probably familiar with the story or illustration or analogy of the frog in the kettle. You know, the, it, it's really just simply a story about warning about the dangers of compromise. You know, the, the story goes that, you know, if you put a frog in a kettle with hot water, it immediately knows the danger and jumps right out. There's nothing fancy about that. Uh, but if you put a frog in a kettle with cool water where it's comfortable and you slowly turn up the heat, uh, that the frog doesn't realize the danger that's coming upon it. And then by the time it does, of course, it doesn't have the strength to jump out of the kettle. And so the story simply teaches about the dangers of compromise. Now, I'm applying that to this beginning series of Judges, where, you know, Judges is really a book about how do we live in a culture that is pluralistic and, in many ways, antagonistic to faith. And there are many ways that we can, we can respond to the culture. One is simply condemnation. We just kind of cry it down and we, we really call it out, uh, doesn't really speak the graciousness of God to it. We rather rail against it. 
not just condemnation, but there's separation. Turn tail and run and just head to the hills, kind of get yourself in a Christian commune. The only problem with that is we're called to be salt and light into the world. Uh, a third response could be uh, not just condemnation, separation, but accommodation, you know, that we just kind of adjust to it. I think this is the more common and the more, more, more dangerous one, I would say, where you accommodate to the culture. It becomes normal to you and comfortable to you. I think Judges is going to lead us to lead more prophetically, to live prophetically in the culture, rather than those other three. Now, I say the book of Judges, many of you perhaps don't even know it's in the Bible, or maybe you do and you haven't read it. It's really a name for the type of leadership over Israel at the time. These judges were, now it's a little bit misleading because we think of judges as these kind of you know, judicial servants in courts of law. And they were that, but more. They were also religious leaders. They were also um, military leaders. That, that this was the type of leadership that was exercised. Now, you may ask, well, where is judges in the timeline of the Bible? Well, that's a, a good question. Uh, the judges follows the wilderness generation. So the wilderness generation are those who were with Moses and Joshua. If you remember the story, Moses goes down to Egypt. He draws the people out of slavery. And of course, he leads them in the desert back to the land that God promised them. Kind of like an Eden for them. This is where they would thrive and prosper and worship the Lord their God. But as you know the story, they get to the edges of the land and they fail in faith. They don't go in. They don't think God is able to defeat the enemies that are in the land. And so God sends them wandering for 40 years. That generation, that faithless generation, will die in the desert. And Moses will die with them. And then Joshua is a successor to him. In fact, the book of Joshua begins with after the death of Moses. You see the continuity. And then Joshua leads the people in the land. This is an exciting time. It's really marked by faith and conquest. And, and they take the land. They break the back of the nations. Well, then Judges follows that. They're in the land, but they haven't settled the land. They haven't secured the land. Now, I want you to feel the hope right now among the people. We're in the land. This is a land that God had promised. It would be like an Eden. We'd worship God. There'd be no distractions. There'd, no, there'd be no idolatries. There would focus on God, enjoy Him. It'll be like God dwelling with the people and the people dwelling with God. A picture of even Revelation 21. So there was great hope in the people. Now, this time, of course, is before the monarchy. So King, Solomon, or King Saul and David and Solomon, they haven't, they haven't arrived yet. So we're about 1300 B.C. to 1050. So that's kind of where it is in the Bible story. Now, what's the theme of this book that we're starting? Well, it's not just a historical overview of what God did among the people of Israel. It's really theological. The book of Judges will be about a crisis of faith. After the death of Joshua, things just go downhill fast. I mean, in spite of God's mercy and grace and delivering the people, protecting the people, and leading the people in, I mean, their lives are train wrecks. When we read the pages... In, in, in Judges, and we read the stories as we go through this, I mean, it could be rated R, maybe more. I mean, you got, you got illicit sex, you got murder, you got betrayal, you got political intrigue, you got it all. 
I mean, it's, it's an absolute mess. It, it really is marked by compromise. Kind of a half-hearted obedience among the people. They obeyed kind of, but not really fully. We're going to see cycles of sin. You know, a leader, a, a, a good leader will die. The people will then begin departing from God, following other gods. And then God will bring discipline and he'll bring oppression of the nations upon them. They'll cry out to God and ask for deliverance. They'll wake up to the reality of God and he'll bring deliverance through a judge. And then they'll have a time of peace. But then the leader will die and boom, they're back into the cycle again. It's really summed up. The book of Judges is summed up in the line that there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see it in 17.6, and it's scattered throughout the book. It's the very last verse of the book itself. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's, it's a dark book. It's got a lot of darkness to it. But I want you to see the amazing light that is shined in the darkness by the relentless mercy of God. God's glory and his patience outshine the stubbornness of men and women in their sin i mean they don't deserve it they don't appreciate it and yet god keeps coming towards us with grace and mercy it's incredible he does it by raising up these judges these judges are flawed individuals but god uses them but then they sin again and he raises another one up they sin again he raises another one up what it's going to do by the end of the book is we're longing, we're hungering for a true king, a true judge who will deliver us completely and finally. That's what the book is going to create in you an appetite. We need a king. The king that we worshiped last week, we need that kind of king. Not just to deliver us from the influences of culture, but to deliver us from the sin within our own souls. That's going to be the real issue. Not so much the culture. The culture has its, has its effect and influence on us, no doubt. But it taps into a deep reservoir of idolatry and sin in our own souls. So we need something more than just a temporal judge to deliver. We need a true judge to come and save us. And that's why this book will just keep pushing us to Jesus Christ. Now, why did the elders have me preach this book? Well, I think because we do live in a very religious, pluralistic culture. We live and work among people with a variety of beliefs. I mean, not just spiritual, but moral and sexual and political, educational. And how are we going to live? Not just condemning or not just separating, but how are we going to live? And not surely accommodating. But how do we live in a way that we can speak prophetically and live prophetically before the culture? That's really the point of this book. So we're going to start in chapter 1. As Miriam read it, you, you see the story. It, it kind of looks successful at the beginning. It really does. But then it kind of turns ugly towards the end. But it, in a way, it's really a picture of our own spiritual lives. Don't you feel the struggle with the inconsistency that we have? We, we find two or three steps of success in the Christian faith, and then we take a step back. You know, we move forward in faith, we walk by faith, we respond by faith, and then we move back to our pursuit of idols and sin. And, and it, it's like sometimes the spiritual faith is like a yo-yo. We're kind of up, we're down. That inconsistency works against the joy of the faith. I think we're going to see ourselves in this. 
Uh, so let's begin in, in chapter 1, because chapter 1 really does speak about uh, the success and the victory. So we get out of the gate really fast. Look with me back at 1 to 4. He says, After the death of Joshua, people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first against us, against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I'll go with you. And then they went, and of course, as the story goes, that they battled the Canaanites and 10,000 died. So we come out of the gate. Now, why Judah first? Well, it could be a lot of reasons. It could be that Judah was the biggest tribe, but they had the biggest land. Uh, but, but I would say there might be more. In Genesis 49, we find that Judah was promised that the scepter would never leave that tribe of of Jews, it wouldn't leave it. And, and we know that David later on would come from the tribe of Judah. And last week when we looked at Revelation 5, Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of, of Judah. So maybe that was part of the reason. But anyways, Judah went up with his brother Simeon. They were blood brothers, the same children from Leah, their mother. They went up and conquered. And, and the story's told rather quickly, not a lot of detail, but they were successful. And then as you go on through the first 26 verses, you find that there is success after success after success. So things are off to a great start, like the way we often begin our day. But then in verse 27, it seems to take a bit of a bend. In 27, we hear about Manasseh, another tribe, and they did not drive out the inhabitants. Well, this catches our attention because what's happening now? God promised us that we would have the land, that he would go before he would drive out the enemy. What happened? Well, actually, the roots of failure were before Manasseh. If you look with me back in verse 19, you see it even in the tribe of Judah. It says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. At this point, we're very excited. But then that but comes in. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now you and I may be thinking, well, that's reasonable. I mean, chariots would be like a modern-day tank. They could mow down hundreds of soldiers. But there's a failure of faith here. Now you may not see it because we didn't read Joshua yesterday. But in Joshua 17, 18, Joshua said to these, souls that were taking the land. He said this, Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. You can drive. They were more impressed with the chariots than they were than the promise of God. They didn't trust in the strength of God over these chariots. So we see this failure. But then there becomes this pattern of failure. Because you look in 21, the tribe of Benjamin, they couldn't drive out the Jebusites. And then as Miriam read, 27, Manasseh did not drive out. 29, Ephraim did not drive out. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Dan, the tribe of Dan, they didn't even get their allotted land. You, you see this reoccurring, did not, did not, did not, did not. So it looked like a success, and yet it was turning into an absolute failure. They were accommodating. I, I mean, they forced some into labor, no doubt. Asher just lived with them. Dan didn't even get the land. Now, am I making a big deal out of all this land? And come on now, you just say, well, they, they were there, kind of. You know, they did kind of occupy the land, and, and 
Isn't that good enough? Shouldn't we make peace with having a bit of a victory, having a partial obedience? God would say no to that. You know, Joshua warned the people before they went into the land in the last chapter. These are his last words, so they're important to us. They're preparing the whole book of Judges, and here's what he says. Be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with those nations remaining, or that you may not make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn your back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but there shall be a snare and a trap before you. Do you see the warning? The very warning before conquering the land. And then guess what? They do the very thing he told them not to do. Now, before I talk about their failure and our failure in faith, let me just touch on the morality of this holy war. I know many of you may be thinking right now, well, this driving out the inhabitants, it sounds to me like a bit of ethnic cleansing. I mean, we wouldn't condone this kind of behavior, just go in and drive out these nations from their lands and occupy them. Well, I can't untangle all the issues of the morality of God in terms of a holy war, but let me give you a few things to consider. Uh, number one, we don't want to make a false comparison. We don't want to take the theocracy of Israel and make a direct comparison to some secular democracy like the USA. Uh, they're not the same animal. If you want to make any comparisons and you want to compare Israel to something, compare it to the church. That's the first thing. Secondly, this isn't an ethnic cleansing in the sense of it's not based upon race. Because you saw in verses 16 about the Kenites who, who were with Judah going up. They were not of Israel. They were not of Abraham. And so it wasn't removing inhabitants because of their race. But rather, it was to smash down the altars and to bring forth a land that could be dedicated to God. And then I would say third, I would say that um, this war was under the direct decree of God himself. This wasn't some governmental sanctioned war. This wasn't something that a government or some uh, oligarchy kind of decided we're going to expand our land. God decreed that they remove these inhabitants. And, and what this is, is God is bringing a divine justice to the nations of these Canaanites. Uh, some theologians call this the intrusion principle. That God, as creator of all things, has a right to intrude upon his creation and to bring about a judgment upon the wicked before that final judgment day. We see it in Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They lied about what they gave to Peter. Boom, they both died. God doesn't do that every week. So God is allowed to bring a judgment upon his own creation. That's what he's doing here. Now, before you cry foul, or before you say, hey, that's unfair, you heard what Adonai Bezek, the king, said. 
when his thumbs were cut off and his toes were cut off? That is to disable him for war. What did he say? He said in seven, as I have done, so God has repaid me. He, in his own words, justifies the judgment of God on his own life. That will be said often on the final day. We will justify God. God is justified in his judgment. So when you look at this first chapter, you see it seems like a success. And yet it was only partial because the obedience was only partial. It wasn't a success. In many ways, it's like the way we kind of live our Christian life. You know, our, our parenting, if we raise moralistic children, and they're good children, but we haven't inculcated the gospel of Christ in them, is that a success that they're just good citizens? Or our marriages? You know, that, that we look nice, cleaned up, respectable. We come to church, maybe even holding hands, but... But in our homes, we're not caring for the soul of one another. We're not challenging each other in the faith. We're not praying for one another. We're not repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness. Or even draw it to yourself personally. You know, we can say I haven't committed adultery, but I don't even fight the lust in my life anymore. So it's kind of obedient, but not really. Or, or I haven't murdered anyone, and yet I store up hate and bitterness in my soul. And I don't even deal with it. We look like a success, but we're really not being obedient to God. That's the warning here in chapter 1. So, so, so when we look at our own souls, what are the seeds of their failure? What brought about the ruination of these people of God? Well, let me give you three things to think about. Three things would be, I think they failed to see the necessity of spiritual leadership. The whole chapter comes after what? After the death of Joshua. They had only known prophetic leadership of Moses and Joshua. And now when that was taken away, they seemed to go in their own direction, doing what was right in their own eyes. Now listen, I'm sympathetic when we talk about leadership of the failures that are present in Christian leadership, particularly the sexual failures or the financial ruin. We all know and have plenty of examples, and it makes life difficult, no doubt. But the failure doesn't deny the benefit of good spiritual leadership, good godly leadership over a gathering of people. I would ask you to pray for the leaders of this church. I would ask you to pray for our godliness, our holiness. I would ask you to pray for our steadfastness, our upholding of truth in a gracious in godly way, I would ask for that. I just want to be the first to tell you, we know that we need that. I trust that you know that we need that. But not just pray for the leadership, pray for the membership. Pray for yourselves. Pray that you would be willing to follow. That you won't just do what is right in your own eyes. Now, if COVID's done one thing, it has revealed a bit about that. We all think we're right. We should be wearing masks. We shouldn't be wearing masks. And we're all convinced in our position. Even within families, there is division over this. We tend to think what is right from our own eyes. We need to pray as we walk in these days of COVID and vaccines and the 
other issues that we may hold near and dear that the Scriptures may not give super clear responses to. How are we going to do that? Let's pray for the leadership and our membership. Secondly, I would say that the second seed is that they failed to see the danger of compromise. They failed to see the danger of compromise. Look at Judah for a minute. Now Judah comes down, they conquer the hill country, they come down into the plains. Now the plains are just as you know them, they're flat lands and chariots can just do their greatest work in a plain, in a flat land. They see him and they think, Whoa, we can't go against those. Now, it does make military sense. It does. It just doesn't make any sense to God, who's not impressed with chariots. You're going to find in chapter 4 of Judges, they destroyed the chariots. They battled against chariots and won easily. But it did make military sense. But it didn't make any divine sense. Uh, you consider this forced labor. You know, in, Instead of driving the inhabitants out, they turned them into forced labor. It makes economic sense. Right, I mean, a, a band of people that we can pay just enough to keep them alive, that they can do all the work that we don't want to do? I mean, that makes economic sense. But it doesn't make any divine sense, because he said, drive them out. Now, what in your life makes sense to you that doesn't make sense to God? What have you adopted? What, what have you made peace with in your life? So, for example, integrity in the office. You know, do you speak with truth in all ways? In gracious ways, of course, but do you speak the truth? Or do you, do you say, no, no, you just don't do business that way anymore, Tom. You've been in the pastorate too long. You've got to tell the story. You've got to kind of work it. You've got to kind of layer it in. You know, it makes sense in the office. I get that. But it doesn't make sense to God. You know, the, you noticed in verse 19, the people of Judah said, we could not drive them out. God could have been saying, but you would not drive them out. You could, you could, but you, you would not. You, you, is it, I can't speak with honesty in the office and get ahead. Or would God be saying, you will not speak? Is it a, is it a choice you're making? Because God has the capacity to serve you well in whatever business context you're in. Or, or move it out of the office, integrity of the office. Move it into your own sexuality, the relationships, maybe unhealthy relationships. You just say, I, I, I could not break off this relationship. I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't turn away from porn. I, I'm just too addicted. Are we saying you could not or you would not? Is God not able to fashion in your heart new desires and new loves, new relationships? Think about the different areas, or, or forgiveness. You know, the scriptures tell us to forgive, and you say, I couldn't forgive that person. I could not do it. I mean, they have hurt me too deeply, and too many times. And God might say to you, well, could you, or would you not forgive them? God, as you look at your own sin and the forgiveness that he's given to you in the Son, and you draw from that reservoir, and then you give it, and you begin to move towards forgiveness. Now, I recognize forgiveness is a complicated thing, and it's not simply saying, hey, hey, you're forgiven, let's move on. I know there's a lot of nuances to it, depending upon the relationship and the length of time. But we want to be in a posture of always saying, I, I will forgive, because I've been forgiven. So just remember, there's a lot of crevices in your soul where you've made peace with the way the world does business, and it makes sense but not to God. So what are those areas? I, I want to encourage you to confess those to God. 
and ask for grace. Is he not a God that can conquer the chariots? He can. And he can conquer the things in your life that you feel you just are unable to do. Appeal to him. Even if you don't have a desire for him, ask him for that desire. Okay, and then the third thing I would say to you, the seed of failure is, so I've said to you that they failed to see the necessity of church leadership. Uh, they failed to see the dangers of compromise. And I'd say that they also failed to see the, the danger of the very gifts and the blessings of God. You know, when God blesses us, there's almost a dark underbelly to it. It makes us less on point. It, it, it makes us less aware sometimes. You know, as God gifts and blesses us, whether it's with wealth or with ministry, we often forget that he's the giver of every good gift. And we begin to take it almost like, hey, I'm, I'm, I am getting pretty good. I mean, it, this thing's really working for me right now. One author said it this way, he says, in fact, some of the darkest temptations come immediately following blessings. Either a breakthrough in life or some triumph in life or ministry. Our spiritual defenses come down. We coast. We neglect the spiritual disciplines. We neglect important relationships. We lose dependence on the grace of God to persevere us. Blessings dull our spiritual senses. And then he brings up David as a classic example. Hey, when he's on the point fighting thousands and thousands of, of enemy soldiers, He's faithful and fixed and he's firm. He didn't fall. All that kind of pressure, all that bloodshed, and he's faithful. But it's when he's sitting in his palace on that nice overstuffed chair, kind of looking out over his kingdom, that he sees just one woman, that's all it took. Mighty David, mighty David, killing 10,000 soldiers. Just one woman taking a bath. Whole kingdom brought down. Family ruined. Multiple families ruined. Kingdom shaken. All because of the ease and the comfort he had. Be aware. The blessings are from God. Let's rejoice over them. But never stop saying, God, it is a gift that you have given to me. And I thank you for it. I know it's come from you. So we see here this chapter one is kind of a warning to us, but it really sets the tone for the whole book. But I want to just take a couple minutes and show you chapter two, just, just those first five verses, because in chapter two, God is going to deal with the failure of Israel. And in this, we see a pattern of how God deals with our failures. And, and we want to profit because as we see God deal with them, so can we learn how to cure this kind of spiritual inconsistency. We can learn how to live prophetically in this culture. We can learn how not to give way to kind of that spiritual lostness that we see in chapter 1. The first thing God does, and the first thing I want to remind you, is that God reminds us of his grace. This is where light begins to come over the horizon in that morning. Look with me at 1 and 2. He says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? This is really a moment of, of deep sadness as we're going to see how the people respond. But, but I want to remind you of something. God immediately goes back to what he has done. God goes to the past. Look at what I've done. I brought you up. 
I protected you. I brought you into the land. God goes to this litany, this history of how he has given grace and mercy to us over and over. And now he goes to the past. This is what I've done for you. <clears throat> he goes to the future when he says, I shall never break my covenant with you. This is relentless mercy. I don't even, I can't get my mind around this. That to a people who have just sinned against him so boldly, he says, I'll never break my covenant with you. You know, I've told you before from this pulpit that you need to be a student of your own history. You need to know what God has done in your life. You need to rehearse it. It's, I'm telling you, it's food for the soul. Uh, Carol and I last night had a wonderful dinner with a friend, and we're just rehearsing how, how God has saved us back when he did, and how he took us through the, the rigors of overseas and missions, and how he blessed us. Our hearts were just, Carol and I, we were just filled with joy over all that God has already done for us as a testimony of his kindness. So here, God comes to us gentle. He comes to them gentle. I shall never break my covenant with you. I want you to see the mercy of God. The Old Testament God is not mean and cruel and distant and just throwing down bolts of lightning and just wiping out people that don't do everything he says. We have this dichotomous relationship as if the God of the Old Testament's mean, just get out of the Old Testament, jump to Jesus, he's soft and nice and the new. It's the same God. And you see it here, people. You see his kindness here. God is good and merciful beyond our ability to measure. He's kind to us. But he is holy, and he does bring discipline. And you see, he says, listen, you have not obeyed my voice. What, what is this you've done? And he rebukes them. And he does discipline them. Look with me at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, So now I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Now, oh, this, is, this is catastrophic here. This is catastrophic. He's, he's not going to drive them out. So they're going to be a constant influence. They're going to be working against godliness and any progress in faith. And their gods will be a snare to you. Now, a snare, you know what a snare is. You know, a snare is just a trap. It, it catches things. Unawares, it, it catches things. The gods, what are these gods? They're just the idols of the land. We had them, they had them. They may have had idols carved out of wood and stone. Our idols are our success or sex or, or popularity or relationships or business or intelligence or education, whatever they are for you. They're snares. Why? Because they're kind of counterfeits just saying, hey, believe in me. I'll give you significance in life. I'll give you security in life. I'll take care of you. I'll give you meaning. And they're bidding for your attention and they're bidding for your, for your love. They want you to love them. So the one that says, hey, success is the way I'm going to be somebody. And they just drive for it. And they lose their family. They lose their relationships. Uh, they're, they're willing to compromise all kinds of ethical stands they once had. Because I want that. That's what the gods do. And he says, there'll be a snare to you. It's catastrophic when he said that. And that's why you see them begin to weep. Oh my, they begin, look, look with me at four and five. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept and they called the place Boken, which means to weep. I mean, they named the place after it. That's how much they're weeping. They're, they're weeping. They're, God has brought discipline. They are now weeping. 
and then begin to make sacrifices. Now, do we see this as true repentance? We don't know yet. We don't know the rest of the story. We're only in chapter 2, verse 5. We have a whole book to cover. But, but you see, God, in his mercy, reminds him of his grace. He rebukes the nature of their sin. And then he draws them to repentance. So what are the cures that we see here? What is in these five verses that can help you and I fight that spiritual compromise? And what are in these five verses that can kind of help us not go the way of success, kind of, but of full success? The first thing I would point out to you, don't forget the grace of God. Don't succumb to spiritual amnesia. Don't forget all that God has done for you. You know, he, he, he records what he did for them. What has he done for you? Consider his relentless mercy to you. Maybe you are in the middle of sin even right now and you feel his spirit pressing on you. It's the kindness of God. Don't forget his grace. And I want to show you something. It is the remembrance of his grace that helps us to obey. Sometimes we think of a God of grace and a call for obedience. We see those as enemies. We see them as somehow antagonistic to one another. No, that's not it. And it's surely not, if you obey, then you'll find his favor. It's definitely not, if you keep these commandments, then he'll love you. It's the other way round. This is what Christianity is about, is God has first loved us. That's what he said to the nation of Israel. He says, I have set my love on you. Not because you're more numerous, not because you're holier. It's God's choice. God's initiated grace. I've set my love on you. And it's God's mercy to us that leads us to then obey. It's as we see his love for us. You know, it's been said that love lifts the burden. You know, when you've been asked to do something, and it's very difficult, but the one who has asked you, you love deeply, it doesn't feel like the same burden. The love of God lifts the burden, what we often attribute to a struggle with obedience. His love lifts the burden. Do you know this God of grace? Do you know him? You know, Bonaventure was a Catholic theologian, a teacher in the Middle Ages, and he was once asked by a pupil, why don't people love God? And he simply said to him, they don't know God. If you know this gracious, kind, and merciful God, then obedience is a, is a response that almost comes out naturally and will as we are being sanctified. So don't forget the grace of God. Don't grow tired of thinking of his kindness to you first secondly practice repentance and faith practice repentance you know the, this idea of repentance we're repenting of our sins listen he didn't drive out the inhabitants and, and there are idols that are a snare to us and we will fall the christian life involves sin that's why we confess our sins remember even john says in the first letter that if we say we have no sin we're a liar the truth of god is not in us so, so we want to confess, we want to repent, but, but you notice what they did, they just wept. Now, weeping is a sign of repentance, it can be. It can attend repentance, but it's not all of repentance. No, it's more than weeping. Oftentimes we feel very bad about what we've done. We feel horrible about it. Maybe we're brought to tears. That's not repentance. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great a British preacher in the 20th century in London. He was a Welshman, and uh, he was often accused of being kind of playing into emotionalism of people. And so he once said uh, to those criticizing him, he said, listen, it doesn't take anything to make a Welshman cry. But to 
to make a Welshman change his mind, it takes an earthquake. It takes an earthquake. That's what we need. We need God's to move upon us. And his discipline to us should be like an earthquake, helping us to change. Not just weep over what we've done wrong, but change. This is where we appeal to Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian here, this is really the entrance into the faith. If you're thinking about Christianity, the way that Christianity is engaged is recognizing the holiness of God, the tendency that we have to pursue idols of every kind, to see the sin in our, our lives as not just being a cultural problem, but being an internal problem, a personal problem, and then get right with God is through repentance and faith. We repent of our sins and we cling to the hope of this coming judge that we'll speak about in just a minute. That's how we enter the faith. But even for the Christian, sanctification is always repentance and faith, repentance and faith. You may have been in the faith a hundred years right now. But you know what? As long as you're breathing, you're going to struggle with these idolatries. And what do we do? Don't shy away from God. Don't say, I've got to clean up my life before coming back to God. No, come to God with all of your sin and say, God, forgive me. These are the things I've done. Give me the grace to change. So that's how we fight this slow kind of compromise into spiritual apathy and spiritual apostasy, as we're going to see. And then the third thing I would say to you is don't forget the tension in the passage. This is going to help us. This is going to help us walk faithfully. What, is, what tension in the passage am I talking about? Well, look with me at verse 1. Because in verse 1, he says, I will never break my covenant with you. And you're thinking, well, what tension is that? That's not a lot of tension. That's just good news, isn't it? Well, look in verse 3. I will not drive them out before you. So, so we're kind of hemmed in a bit, right? God's never going to break his covenant with us, so we will be saved, and yet, and yet the, the snares will never be taken away, so we'll keep sinning. How do we reconcile this tension? That, that, that he's going to save me, but he's holy, and he has to punish sin, and I'm still going to sin, and I'm still going to struggle. How do we resolve the tension? Well, that's what Judges is about. All these temporal judges, all 12 of them are going to come and bring temporal deliverance, but there will come a judge. For these saints, they're looking forward to that judge. For us, we're looking back to the judge, this judge, this Jesus Christ who is judge of the world. In him, the tension. God's made two promises. So God, in a way, is in an impossible situation. How is he going to not break the covenant? And yet, how is he going to deal with the people who continue to sin? Well, he's going to bring one like us, but not entirely like us. And he is going to cause him who knew no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see? This is the glorious exchange. Jesus, the judge, the Savior, the King, he comes and bears our sins and our guilt and our shame. He does it nakedly, just as you would be naked to be exposed physically. But all the guilt and the sin and the shame... Can you imagine if everybody knew what you know about yourself? And yet all of that was poured upon Christ. And God punished him instead of you. He was in your stead. And yet he lived a perfect life and he gives to us his perfect righteousness so that he will never break his covenant with us. He will save us. But he will save us through this judge and this king. This is what the book is leading us to just cry out for. We have to put ourselves in a, a pre-cross context and say, we need one like Christ to come. He is worthy of our worship because we're going to fail. But we can cry out to God. He will raise up a judge. Look at who he raised up. 
Christ for us, gave him a body, gave him to us to reconcile us to himself. This is what the Christian faith is about. It's not about morality. Morality should be an outgrowth of it. It's about a people who worship God for such a son through the power of the Spirit. Let's take a moment, just for a few moments in silence, just consider the state of your own soul. Maybe you feel like you're an absolute failure in faith. Maybe you feel like you're really on a high succeeding. Let's profit by the glory of Christ in this passage, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.